renewal. Uh, by way of just two quick announcements, one is, um, so as Isaac mentioned, uh, I am the church planter in Cherry Hill through Renewal, and I would really actually just covet you guys' prayers. Uh, we began meeting for the first time two weeks ago. We're going to again here meet this evening, uh, and, uh, and it's been a really sweet time. It's been a really encouraging uh, time for us to be able to begin meeting together, but I would really uh, appreciate you guys' prayers uh, as that is all going on. Um, the second thing, actually, is that this passage this morning, uh, given that most of you probably tuned out around verse 7 or 8, uh, we actually only did uh, up to verse 19, but I'm actually going to be preaching through the entire chapter of verse 9, sort of highlighting some different aspects of uh, Daniel and his call towards corporate confession this morning. So if we end up addressing things that were not initially brought up here or not initially read, that's what's going on there. Uh, if you will, with me, let's bow our heads as we prepare our hearts to hear uh, God's word here this morning. Dear Heavenly Father God, we ask, Lord, that your name would be glorified here this morning. We ask, Father God, that our, our hearts would hear your words this morning. Lord, it, it may be difficult for us to hear your words as as the, the, the topic, the theme is that of corporate confession, and with this comes the necessity, Lord, to, to acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, not just individually, but as a, as a body, Lord God. And this can be difficult, Lord, for us to do. I ask, Father, that if our hearts are at all hardened this morning, our hearts feel any sense of bitterness right now in this moment, Lord God. I ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would soften us to consider what it is that you have to say to us, Lord God, and to hear the call of Daniel here this morning towards repentance. Father, be with us as we go throughout this passage this morning. We lift all this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was a young boy, uh, I was homeschooled by my mother, which meant that up for the first, up until about sixth grade, which meant that there was a lot of days that it was me, my mom, and my sister together in the home. It was just us. And I was a very obstinate little guy, was very sure in who I was, very confident that I just was not wrong about anything, which meant that there were plenty of times as my mother was trying to teach me things that I was just one of probably the most arrogant little kids you could have ever met. I was undoubtedly very disobedient at various times. And my mom, she would, she would seek to discipline me when I would act out, when I would do things that were not appropriate. But for some reason, her discipline just didn't hit me quite the same way as it did with my father, who's 6'5", very large, imposing person, very deep voice, did. And so there would be times where she would go to discipline me, and I would just look at her with very calloused eyes as if her discipline meant nothing to me. And I'll never forget her words when she would say to me, just wait till your father gets home. And so then for the rest of the day with dread in my heart, I would just be waiting for when dad got home. Because that discipline I feared, frankly. Thankfully God has done a work in my heart towards my own mom, but... But my heart just feared 
the justice that would be coming upon me when my dad would get home later that afternoon. And as I would move closer and closer to the time that I knew he was coming home, my heart would feel greater and greater remorse for what I had done. It's that sense of wait until your father gets home that we find the prophet Daniel here this morning. As he's calling the people towards repentance, he's acknowledging that the people are, that they have sinned, that they are going through a time of God's judgment upon them. And he's calling out to them to repent. He's calling out for God's mercy in the lives of the nation of Israel. And so we find ourselves this morning here with with four major points that we're going to hit. One is we're going to see Daniel's historical reminder through this passage. The second thing we're going to see is Daniel's ultimate call for repentance. Not just individual repentance, but repentance amongst the nation of Israel. We're then going to see Daniel's plea for mercy from the Almighty God. And finally, then, heaven's response to Daniel. How does heaven respond here to Daniel? Daniel's historical reminder, Daniel's call for repentance, Daniel's plea for mercy, and heaven's response. Now, if you were to look in the beginning of the passage here in in Daniel chapter 9, it says, in the first year... Of Darius, the son of Azarus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This is really just here for us to historically place where they are at in this time and space. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What's happening here? Daniel is looking back, and he's regarding the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and he's noticing that the Lord has said that there would be this time of desolation in Israel. There would be this time of judgment that would come upon them. They're in the midst of it. But the Lord has told uh, Jeremiah that, that this time of judgment will not last forever. There will be an end to this time. This time of exile, we call it came upon Israel. And, and historians have tended to agree that this was around 605 B.C. that this would have occurred. And that the writings of Daniel are around 539 B.C. So if you start kind of tallying the math in your head, Daniel's looking and he's going, these 70 years, they should be coming to an end here soon. But Daniel's desire is not just that the nation of Israel grit its teeth and and just sort of get through it, but rather that there is a time of repentance, there is a time of understanding of their sin before the Lord, and the need for them to return to him. He knew that after 70 years was to come a bit of a reprieve as they were in the midst of their desolation. And so that's what he's doing here. He's reading through the writings of Jeremiah, and he's noting what is the end that is to come. But, but why is it here that Israel finds themselves in this place? What has happened historically that has occurred? Daniel refers later on in this passage towards them breaking the law of Moses. Breaking the law of Moses. 
And God had told the people during the time of Moses, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28, the entire book of Deuteronomy, God is outlining, outlining the law to the nation of Israel. And he's saying to them, if you follow my ways, there will be blessing that comes upon you. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all of the nations of the earth. There was a promise of great blessing to the nation of Israel, that they would take the promised land, that it would be a land flowing of milk and honey, that they would be regarded as above all of the other nations of the earth. But, the counter to that, as the Lord as their king, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The curses of broken families, the curses of death and destruction, the loss of a nation state, all of these things would come as a form of judgment upon Israel. And the reality is, if you were to read through the Old Testament stories, from Moses onward to the time of the prophets, you find through the kings that there is constant rejection and walking away from the commands of the Lord. There is constant intermingling with the larger global society around them. There is a synchronizing of other religions with what God has said, the way that God has said to live. They ultimately pursued false idols. They intermarried with other nations. And we find them breaking the law in almost every aspect. We find the nation of Israel walking away from the Lord. And this is the constant theme. You know, um, historians note that if you were to read through the Hebrew, through the books of First and Second Samuel, then into First and Second Kings, Joshua, Judges, all of this, the message that is being constantly conveyed to the reader that we often miss in the English is this, this, just this descent and walking away from the Lord, continuing, continuing to distance themselves from God. Daniel, then, moves on towards this call of repentance, noting this separation from the Lord. Daniel makes a call for repentance towards the nation of Israel. Because you see, Daniel's ultimate desire for the people, the, the lesson that we're going to see here this morning is that though God had provided the roadmap to righteousness and life everlasting, judgment would be coming due to their willful rejection of his promises. And so we find now Daniel calling the people towards repentance in order to stay the judgment of God, in order to bring God's mercy upon his people. Mercy that will, as we will see, can only be found in Christ, his sacrifice upon the cross. If you were to look with me in verse 3 then, looking at Daniel's call for repentance, we notice two different things happening here. And this is important when we consider what it looks like for our own repentance and for our own corporate repentance as God's people. 
You'll notice the first thing that he says in verse 3. Then I turned my face towards the Lord. What is this communicating from Daniel? There is an acknowledgement of his place before the Lord. The need for him to cast his eyes upon God. Not seeking to hide as Adam and Eve did in the garden. If you'll remember the story of Adam and Eve, what do they do? When the Lord confronts them, they hide. Daniel, in true repentance, turns towards the Lord, acknowledging their sinfulness, acknowledging their walking away from God. The second thing he does is praise. He gets on his knees. He bows in prayer. And he asks for mercy. What does this asking for mercy do? It acknowledges your place before the Almighty God. That what you are deserving of is his judgment. What you are deserving of is to be cast away from him. But rather, he asks for mercy in prayer. The third thing we see that he does is that he fasts. Now this is something that in our culture of instant gratification, I would argue, is probably something that not many of us practice. And it's probably something that many of us ought to consider practicing routinely in our own lives. And it doesn't necessarily have to be food all of the time. That's how most of us think of fasting. Rather, it can be anything in your life that you know distracts your attention from the Lord. Anything that were it to be missing, there would feel an emptiness in your heart that you would recognize a need or be able to recognize a need to fill it with the Lord and his hope and his mercy in your life. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's the, the computer in your pocket. Maybe it's different foods. Maybe it's not all foods. Maybe it's just certain foods in particular. Anything that you can eliminate for a time in order to force you to cast your eyes upon the Lord and acknowledge your need for him. And the final thing he does is puts himself in sackcloth and ashes. This is something I know that none of us practice because I haven't seen any of you walking around in sackcloth and ashes lately. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we must put ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. But there is something very real. There is something very tangible about dressing yourself in a certain way of acknowledging. You think about it, when you go to a funeral, what do you wear? All black. Why? Because it's a way of outwardly expressing the inward sadness that you're feeling, the sense of loss within your own life. It may not be that you necessarily have to wear sackcloth and ashes, but it is certainly worth considering in your own life. Is there a way in which I can outwardly, tangibly dress myself so to acknowledge my own need for the Lord, the own, my own sort of inner confession, my own inner need for repentance, and the heaviness to communicate, not necessarily to others, but to yourself at the minimum, heaviness in your heart for the sin you have committed. And these four things, these four outward expressions 
lead to three inward expressions that we see happening in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. So specifically what he does when he prays is he confesses to the Lord. But he doesn't just confess his sin. Note what he says. I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What does he first do? What does Daniel first do? He first elevates God. This is step one in our inward confession. Our inward repentance is to acknowledge the place of God. To acknowledge his perfection. To acknowledge his covenant keeping. To acknowledge his love. But then in verse 5 we see an acknowledgement of sin and wickedness. So what Daniel does is he draws the contrast. He says we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules. Why is this contrast so important? Because if you just acknowledge your sin, it could easily be that all you are saying is, I'm sorry that I got caught. It very well may be that there's not actual genuine repentance going on there. But to acknowledge the Lord your God and his place and his love and his care. And then to acknowledge your state as a sinner before him draws that contrast. It orients our heart so that we come to the Lord and say, I make no excuses. It isn't, well, here's my sin, but God, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have acted this way. No, it's you are God Almighty. You are the one who loves. You are the one who is steadfast. And I have sinned. I have been wicked. And in verse 6, acknowledging that God has given his commandments it isn't, well, God, I didn't know, like a child might say to their parents. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. Though their parents have probably very well told them before, do not do that. True repentance, true confession acknowledges that God, we have not listened. We have not done what you have called us to do. We have not acted as we ought. We have sinned against you. Specifically, he acknowledges we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Why does this matter, this particular verse? Why does it matter for us as 21st century Christians? Because the prophets came with the word of God. Jeremiah came with the word of God. The Bible that you have before you is the word of God. And the word of God is unchanging. It is unfailing. And when the Lord commands things from it, you are required to follow. You are without excuse when you sin. You cannot come to the Lord and say, but I didn't know. He has given it to you. He has made himself known in his words. Continuing the delineation between God and man, Daniel in verse 7 says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, 
but to us, not just me, not that other guy, not that really bad sinner over there, but to us. But to us belongs, is open shame, as at this day. And then he goes on to list the people of Israel, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel. This is significant because at this point, Israel is divided into two nations. So he's not just saying, hey, that Judah over there, they're really messed up. Or that Israel over there, they don't have it figured out. But rather, all of us, all of us who are God's people, we have brought shame upon your name. Those who are near and those who are far, no matter where you are located, we have brought shame. And then he specifically goes on to mention, in verse 8, to those, O Lord, belong open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. This is incredibly important for us to recognize something here. We tend to live in a society that sort of does not like the idea of leadership, does not like the idea of submitting to any form of authority. But one of the things we need to recognize is this is part of how God operates. This is part of how God ordains order in his world, is that he does set up leadership amongst his people. And specifically, when there is a failure amongst the people, it is the leadership whom God looks upon to take responsibility for that. It began from the very beginning. What does God do ultimately when he goes to Adam and Eve? Sure, he speaks to Eve. But who is responsible for that sin? It falls upon the head of Adam. When the nation of Israel sins, sure, the people themselves have sinned. They have not listened. But who does it fall upon? It falls upon the heads of the leadership, the kings the, the fathers, as it were, this would be akin to the elders of the nation of Israel, to our princes, belongs open shame. This is why the Lord in his providence, in his kingdom, in, his, in his, this time and space we live in today, authorizes authority within his local churches. And if there is sin going on within the churches that is unchecked, it falls upon your elders, your leadership within this church. And this is why when there is sin that goes on, it is not just an individual thing. It is not just something that one person is dealing with, but rather is something that is corporate. We are all walking together corporately. We as God's people are all responsible for one another, to love one another towards God's grace, to call one another back when we see sin going on within our community. Not from a place of judgment, as if somehow that person is worse off, but rather from a place of understanding that, brother, sister, I am no different than you. And that if I were to find myself in that same place as you, I would hope that you, in God's mercy, would call me back to him, to call me back to the body. Now, it's incredibly important in this moment that we recognize sort of as a, a place of a, a modern application point. Daniel's words here are spoken to the nation of Israel. 
And it can be very easy when we hear these words and we go to then make a modern application to think, well, this must be something which is being called out to modern Western America. Right? That we would hope that modern Western America maybe realizes their sin. And certainly we would pray for revival in this nation, no doubt. But our concern is the people in that call themselves followers of Christ, and more specifically, in the local church. These are the people from which, from which, if we are going to do corporate confession, this is where it takes place, is in the local church. The difference between us today and Israel then is that that was a theocratic nation-state that was in disarray, that had sinned and it was broken, and was now in exile as a result of their sin, we today live as the modern church here as God's nation, not bound by physical boundaries, but rather spiritual ones. And because the church is God's people, we must take serious considerations of what our place before the Almighty God looks like. You see, Old Testament Israel they had been greatly influenced. They had been greatly influenced by the culture around them. It is what had caused their sin was adopting and not dealing with the sin that was in their midst. Adopting the, the influence of the culture, the wider culture around them, worshiping after false gods. And so the question, the application point that we must ask ourselves in this day and age what is the cultural air that we all breathe? What are the things that we allow to be in our presence that we may just assume are no big deal, but rather, but instead are actually great sin against the Lord? Maybe you find yourself working in the business world, and because it is normal for people to cut corners. It is normal for people to objectify other human beings and to use them as a means to an end. You have adopted that into your practices. This is not how the Lord desires you to live, but rather he desires you to see each and every human being as made in God's image and to treat them with the value and care that he would see them. For that, there ought to be repentance. Maybe you work in the medical field and you become so influenced by the idea that we are just a clump of cells that when you see all the misery and the pain that's around you, it is easy for you to become callous towards others. I know many pharmacists, for example, who have worked in the city that see people coming in with their various drug addictions and there's just sort of a callousness, I know, that can develop towards these people. To almost see them as subhuman, not deserving of your love and care. Maybe you work in academia, and you've become so attracted to the ivory tower that anyone who has ideas which may be different than yours, you look down upon as if somehow they are less than human. Maybe it's your political affiliation and vilifying the other side as if somehow they are not worthy 
of your conversation. Maybe somehow they are not worthy of your interaction. That their ideas and their ways of thinking are so backwards. These are things, this is the air we breathe in our culture. These are things which all of us so easily can take in and allow to saturate and permeate our lives without ever considering that maybe, just maybe, this is leading us away from the Lord. You see, what this ultimately, all of these things, what they ultimately all boil down to is pride. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And brothers and sisters, this country is no different. And the air that we breathe as Christians in this place is saturated with pride. And it is leading us farther and farther away from the Lord. So what does it require for us to deal with this pride? What does it require for us to deal with this sin in our own lives and corporately? The first thing that must be done is to ask the Holy Spirit to actually come in and convict your heart. Maybe he's doing it right now as you're hearing this message. Maybe you are being convicted. And if so, praise God. But the first thing to do is to ask the Holy Spirit to come in and convict your heart. Have you done things like fasting, seeking the Lord in this manner? Have you been in prayer asking him to search your heart and to know you? Have you confessed your sin to others within this congregation? I will tell you the truth. One of the things that I notice most in my life is that the less I confess my sin to other brothers, the more sin runs rampant in my own life. Unchecked. Confessing your sin to others is where this starts to become communal. This is where it starts to really gain traction and take root. And I'm not just saying, hey, I've got this sin that I'm really struggling with right now. I'm talking about, I am addicted to pornography. I am talking, I hate my parents. I am talking, truly confessing, naming it. What is it? What idols in your life life exist which are drawing you away from the Lord? And you know what you're going to find? As you confess this sin to other brothers and sisters, this has a reciprocating effect. They will begin to confess to you. And this is where, as a community, we begin to move forward. We begin to acknowledge our sin and are able to go forward together, moving now towards the Lord God and not away from him. Many of you know that for several years, 
Uh, my family and I live down in Santiago, Chile, where I was a pastor at a church down there. And if you've ever worn the clothes, the, the jackets, Patagonia, maybe you don't know this, but that's where Patagonia is located. And one of the things that I had an opportunity to do, it's in the very south of Chile. It's basically almost Antarctica. But you have to actually go, when you fly in, you have to go south of Patagonia, and then you actually have to drive about five hours north to get into the park. And the park has its own ecosystem. It's a very unique, beautiful part of the world. Mountains everywhere, crystal clear tur or turquoise blue waters and lakes, snow-capped mountains, glaciers. But one of the interesting things is there's all of these forests, and the wind down in Patagonia is incredibly strong. There are times when it's 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, so much so to the point where I could literally stand like this, and the wind would hold me up. Because of this, in the summertime, it gets incredibly dry, and forest fires can start very easily. And what forest fires need in order to really rip through there is a lot of wind. And these things would go through, and they would burn down the entire forest. And I'll never forget, the, there was a time when I was down there hiking. We left our camp that morning. We hiked for about four or five hours, and it was green, lush, beautiful. And then all of a sudden, we turn this corner around one side of the mountain, and we start to descend down into the valley. And I see that these trees, that entire forest, just black and white, scorched. A forest fire I had ripped through a year before and completely made desolate the entire valley area. It killed all of the greenery. And I'll never forget walking through there and having this sense of, this is the judgment that ought to come upon us in our own lives for our sin and our waywardness towards the Lord. I was hiking with another pastor friend of mine, so of course, you know, we're creating all the analogies that we're going to use for the next 30 years in all of our sermons as we're, as we're hiking. And I'll never forget just thinking, this is, this is the judgment that ought to come upon us. This desolation, this total destruction. We hiked through that valley for about an hour and a half. Went up the side of, another mount, uh, side of the, the, the ridge of another mountain. Started to come down in the other one. And that valley as well had been hit by forest fires a few years prior. But now, if you're familiar with what happens after forest fires, there is a time of renewal. There is a time of regrowth that happens. And actually, the soil tends to be very fertile after these times. For us as modern-day Christians, our lives very well may look like that first valley where there is just total desolation. Sin has ripped through. But if as a community, as a church body, we are willing to acknowledge our sin, not just individually, but corporately, there is the opportunity that lies on that next hillside, that next valley, where there is regrowth that can occur. What does it look like then for us to begin moving forward? We may acknowledge our sin together. What does it look like for us to move forward as a community? One is that it must come from your leadership or from those within the congregation going to their leadership calling for this. There must be 
those within the community who are driving this effort towards repentance, towards communal confession. There must be Daniels amongst you who are going to the Lord saying, we desire repentance amongst the nation, amongst the church. But it's not just that. It is then where you go from there is pleas for mercy. It isn't just saying, I'm sorry, God. It is also coming to him and saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. If you consider what happened, the, the, the King, da King David, with his sin with Bathsheba, he has her, her husband killed. He gets her pregnant out of wedlock. He steals her as his own wife. And in Psalm 51, what does he acknowledge before the Lord? He says, have mercy upon me, O God. Mercy, mercy is what is required. In verse 16, we see Daniel going to the Lord in mercy. And what does he call upon the Lord to do for the people? He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Have mercy upon us, because what we deserve is your wrath. Have mercy. He then says, make your face shine upon us. What are we told about the Lord's face? It is like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. For Moses, it made him glow, just gazing upon the back of God. He says, make your face shine. Because what does the Lord's face do? It brings his glory and it purges the sin. Sin cannot exist before that holy God. See our desolation and have mercy on us. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, says Daniel, but because of your great mercy. In the Catechism, in the Westminster Catechism, what does it say every sin deserves? Question 84, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. And what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Question 85, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, Repentance unto life with diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. What is required of you? Faith. Faith in Christ. Why? Because Jesus, in his mercy, looked upon his people, knowing that what they deserved was judgment, knowing that what they deserved was God's wrath. And Jesus came to this earth, and he lived a sinless life showing us mercy, taking upon himself the full weight of God's judgment. Taking upon himself the full weight of God's wrath. 
Now, we didn't get to this last part. We read only up to verse 19. But we see in verse 20, heaven responds. And heaven responds in the form of Gabriel the angel. Gotta love when an angel just shows up to your prayer time. That's a joke. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now the evening sacrifice, if you're not aware, was a time of confession and repentance in Old Testament Israel. So it's apropos that Gabriel shows up at this time. And what does Gabriel communicate to him? He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, presumably from the Lord. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. The Lord hears the pleas for mercy and he shows love towards them because what he desires is a heart which wants nothing more than to worship him. Now, the news that Gabriel gives to Daniel is sort of good and bad. He tells him, we're going to, God's judgment will be stayed. But he also tells him, but judgment is going to come for the sin. And we hear this, we go, but I thought God was merciful. How does the judgment come? Well, what happens is Gabriel shows back up later on in the book of Luke. And he says to Zechariah that his son John the Baptist would be born making the way for the Lord. And then in Luke 1, verse 11 to 34, he comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to give birth to Jesus. And it is in Jesus that the ultimate mercy is shown because the ultimate wrath of God is cast upon Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 7, speaks of who this Jesus is. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throng of throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, God's plan, acknowledging through his covenant faithfulness, that because Israel had continued to walk away from him, that there would come judgment upon them. God was faithful in that regard. He would be a liar had he not cast judgment upon Israel. But just in the same way that those trees in the first valley down in Patagonia underwent the fire, the desolation, so too is new life in the second valley found in Christ Jesus. It is in faith in him and his taking on the full wrath of God now that we find life. God has now provided for us the roadmap 
to righteousness and life everlasting. It is the means to escape judgment through the work of Christ. And Daniel now is calling us, as God's people today, towards repentance in order to rejoice in God's mercy because of what can be found when there is faith in Christ that comes through acknowledging his sacrifice, acknowledging God's place and our state as sinners and our need for Christ as the great mediator who brings life to us. I want to invite us to renewal here this morning. I want to invite us to take a moment. We're going to bow our heads. I want you to come before the Lord. I want them to ask you. I want you to ask him to expose your sin to you. I want us to take a moment right now. We're going to repent. Cry out to him for mercy. Our desire ought to be to bask in the everlasting love and forgiveness in Christ. And it can be found for us if you would call upon the name of the Lord here this morning. Let's bow our heads.